morning we're beginning a new series that I think uh, is timely, I think it's relevant, and frankly I think it's urgent given the mood of our culture. Calling the series, as you've already seen and heard, Stranger Things, Life in the Right Side Up, and I'll take you to the first part of the passage that we're going to be focusing on in this series in a moment, but first let me explain the title. How many of you are aware of or have seen the next Netflix show, Stranger Things? Raise your hand. Okay, a bunch of you guys, great. Uh, if you haven't seen it, it's a little hard for me to describe because it's kind, of a, it's kind of a science fiction show, but it's also kind of horror, and it's also kind of funny and sweet at the same time, and those genres don't normally go together. Plus, the plot is way over my head, so I really don't understand all of it. But let me give you the big picture. Uh, the show is set in the fictional town of Hawkins, Indiana, back in the 1980s. Near Hawkins, there is a scientific laboratory that publicly performs scientific research for the United States Department of Energy, but secretly does experiments in the paranormal and supernatural. Inadvertently, the laboratory created a portal to an alternate dimension called the Upside Down. And the Upside Down is, is kind of a parallel universe to our own. All of the landmarks and things that exist in this world are there in the upside down, except in the upside down, they're desolate and shadowy. Like it's a, it's a frightening, death-filled, alternate universe. And oh yeah, it's inhabited by a monster nicknamed the Demogorgon. Did I pronounce that right? Demogorgon? Yeah, okay. Um, the show's enormously, enormously popular. And so I watched one season of it, and honestly, I kind of got lost, and I stopped watching it. But what caught my attention about it was the idea of these two parallel universes, one in which things are the way that they're supposed to be. I guess you could call that the right side up. And then one that is ugly, frightening, grim, and controlled by the Demogorgon, the upside down. And the reason this idea of parallel universes caught my attention is that in some ways it is very similar to the central theme of the Bible, namely that human history is the story of two parallel but alternate kingdoms, both developing side by side here on earth at the same time. One is the kingdom of man, and the other is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God uh, is sometimes referred to in the Bible as the kingdom of heaven. Uh, it consists of people who are disciples of Jesus Christ here on earth. They live under his rule and reign. And as they learn how to live from him and conform to his teachings, citizens of the kingdom of God can increasingly flourish. They can experience increasingly the Hebrew idea of shalom, which is peace and, and wholeness. They can have deep, meaningful relationships. They can experience a measure of fulfillment in life here on earth. In other words, they can experience a measure of what Nathaniel was talking about just a little while ago in the worship set, a measure of what one day will, life will be like in eternity when the kingdom of God is fully realized. So this is what we could call life in the right side up. It's living under the rule and the reign of, of Jesus Christ. The other parallel kingdom here on earth is the kingdom of man. And citizens of this kingdom decide for themselves how best to live life. Some of them may outright reject Jesus and his teachings about how to live. Some of them may just ignore them. Some of them may be ignorant of them. Some of them may respect them as ideals, but not realistic for life in this real world. And so consequently, in the kingdom of man, there's no ultimate agreement on the best way to live life. 
And so it's really every man for himself, like survival of the fittest. He who has the gold makes the rules. And people and cultures cannot flourish, or at least they can't flourish for very long in that kingdom. It's why empires crumble and nations collapse, because fear and anxiety and chaos and division and war, not shalom, rule the day, because you always have to be on guard, right? Your dignity and your rights, will they end where my desires begin in that kingdom? And so it's tough to live a meaningful life if there's no agreement on what life means. This is life in the upside down. It's the opposite of what God intended life to be. And the Bible says that history is the story of these two parallel but alternate kingdoms developing here on earth side by side. And everyone, you, me, your neighbor, your kids, your employees, your boss, everyone is a citizen of one of these two kingdoms. You're either a citizen of the kingdom of God or you're a citizen of the kingdom of man. Now, As you think about the characteristics of those two kingdoms that I just described a moment ago, I'd like for you to consider the events of the last few weeks in America. And I'd like for you to ask yourself, which kingdom America as a whole most reflects? Last Sunday, I don't know if you saw this, but following two weeks of national acrimony over testimony by both Christine Blasey Ford and Brett Kavanaugh, And then the Senate's vote, mostly along party lines, to confirm Justice Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court. I don't know if you saw this, but the Washington Post ran an article entitled, Supreme Court Fight Reveals a Country on the Brink. And the article quoted politicians on both sides of the aisle, including the former Secretary of Education under Ronald Reagan, William Bennett, who made the observation in the article that this is the second most divided time in our history, comparing the current moment in America to the breakdowns that preceded the Civil War. The article went on to observe that moral outrage has been accepted as the basic currency of political debate. Opponents regularly attack each other's motives along with their positions, An honest reflection, when it cuts through the maw, is often dismissed as a sign of weakness or posturing. The public space for reaching common ground, a basic starting point for a functioning democracy, has diminished. A day later, on Monday of this past week, a writer for the Dallas Morning News also wondered if we're on the verge of civil war. He wrote this, ours is a union frayed, no longer a people. We are these days but an angry aggregate of individuals at odds in a strange sort of war. It happens in history, such unraveling. There's no reason to think we're any different. No matter how exceptional we are, no matter how blessed, civil wars, the decay and decline of empires, it happens. Look, I I don't care what your political views are. I don't care whether you thought Brett Kavanaugh should have been confirmed or not, whether you thought Christine Blasey Ford was telling the truth or not. I'm not here to espouse the rightness or or the wrongness of either of them or any political point of view. Here is what I'm interested in, though. I'd like your opinion. Does what those two articles describe 
And what you've seen on the news and witnessed on social media in the last few weeks, does that sound like human flourishing? Does that sound like a culture that's flourishing? Does that sound like peace and wholeness? Does it sound and feel like a society in which things are right side up or upside down? The concluding line of the Washington Post article, speaking about both the Democrat and Republican politicians that were quoted in the article, here's the concluding line of the article. What no one could offer was a credible path up out of the abyss. And I thought that was an interesting choice of words, the abyss. I know it sounds incredibly strange to many people, and perhaps even some of you here this morning, to suggest that someone who lived over 2,000 years ago offers a credible path out of the abyss that we find ourselves in as a culture. But Jesus, in fact, once gave a talk, some call it a sermon, in which he said that, that life doesn't have to be like this, and that real human beings and real communities and cultures on earth could live right side up in the midst of circumstances that are beyond all human hope. And that's why I find this passage that we're going to be looking at so urgent, so critical, so timely, so relevant. It's found in Matthew chapter 5, and because of the importance of it, we're going to take some time and we're going to look at it very closely as Dustin talked about earlier over the next few months. And I think you will be stunned by the practicality and the relevance of this sermon to life in the 21st century, especially here in America. And as we examine this sermon over the next few months, I'd like to challenge you to be asking yourself this. What if I wholeheartedly became a disciple of Jesus? What if I really learned how to live from Jesus himself, who in fact created life? Not from the culture, not, not learning how to live from the culture, but learning to live from Jesus. How would it change my life? How would it change my relationships? How would it change the lives of the people around me, especially the ones who are most important to me, my girlfriend, my boyfriend, my wife, husband, children, parents, whoever they are? I'd like for you to be asking that. And I'd like for you to ask too, what if large swaths of people were to make Jesus their king and teacher? How would it change our city, our culture, and our nation? I know, I know that it is highly unlikely that large swaths of people would become disciples of Jesus. But listen to me, Str stranger things have happened throughout human history. Am I correct? So turn in your Bibles to this monumentally important sermon in Matthew chapter 5. It's the first book of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 5. If you're new here, it's okay if you don't have a Bible. We'll put the verses up on the screen. But one of the things that we emphasize all the time to our regulars here is to bring your Bible, digital, electronic, uh, hard copy, whatever you want. But just make sure you bring a Bible so that you can make notes. Let me give you just a little context here, Matthew chapter 5. Uh, in the previous chapter, in chapter 4, Jesus' public ministry officially began. And immediately, he began proclaiming his primary message, and the one that he would repeat over and over and over throughout the course of his life. And here was the message, repent for the kingdom of heaven, or you could call it the kingdom of God, interchangeable, repent for the kingdom of heaven 
is at hand. And to demonstrate what the kingdom of heaven or what the kingdom of God will look like when it is fully realized in eternity, he miraculously heals the sick and casts out demons, among other things, because, as Nathaniel said earlier, sickness and death and evil won't exist in the future kingdom of God. They do here on earth. But in the future kingdom of God, they will not exist. And as you can imagine, word got out about these miracles and enormous crowds began to follow him. And so he goes up on a mountainside where the people could see him and hear him and he begins to teach them about life in the kingdom of God and how they could enter into that life in the here and now on earth, how they could live right side up in the midst of a world that is upside down. And I want to start reading the introduction to the sermon from verse 3 of chapter 5. Some of you will recognize this passage. For some of you, it may be new. Either one is fine. Let me just start reading it from verse 3 of chapter 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who, persecute, who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And he says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Now understand... That this is just the introduction to the sermon. The whole sermon goes through chapter 7. And uh, I'm not even going to have time this morning to get into this introduction in much detail. We'll save that some for next week. The reason for that is that we need to understand the point of this whole sermon. The point of this whole sermon that Jesus is giving is this. That it is possible to live right side up in an upside-down world under the discipleship of Jesus. That's the point of the whole sermon. Everything we're going to talk about for the next few months goes to that point. It is possible to live right-side-up in an upside-down world under the discipleship of Jesus. This is what Jesus means when he says that the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, is at hand. You see, I say this because I think contrary to what you have experienced in a lot of sermons, my own included, sermons are supposed to have a point. (laughs) They're supposed to have a coherent message. They're supposed to be about something. And I'll be the first to admit that I have preached many sermons that I wasn't even sure what they were about. So I'm sure no one else understood them either. Uh, But that is not the case with Jesus. This is a sermon with a coherent message. It is not a random group of sayings. Everything he says goes to this one point, that it is possible to live right side up in an upside down world in which there is no human hope at all. And the way to do so is under the discipleship of Jesus. And believe it or not, 
All of that is conveyed in one word, which keeps showing up over and over and over in these verses. What word do you think I'm referring to? Yeah, it's the word blessed. Jesus repeats it nine times in these verses. Remember, Jesus was speaking to people who couldn't go back and listen to a podcast to review the sermon. They couldn't tell other people, I heard this great sermon, go listen to the podcast. They They couldn't do that. So he wants to make sure that they don't miss the point. So the very first word that he utters in the sermon is the whole point of the sermon, and then he repeats it nine times. Blessed, 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 nine times. And I think if you or I might have been there, you might have said, okay, I've got the point. But Jesus wants to make sure they get it, so he keeps hammering it home. The problem is that the significance of this word gets lost on us because we've kind of turned it into a Christian cliche, haven't we? Someone sneezes and we say, God bless you. The Christian way to express your frustration about someone is to begin by saying, God bless him, but, right? Uh, You check out at Target and the cashier says, have a blessed day. You get a card in the mail from a Christian friend, she signs it, blessings. It's all very cliche, and as a result, it's a word that has lost its significance, which is, by the way, the danger of turning biblical words and phrases into cliches. So it's lost on us some, but it wasn't for Jesus' listeners on this day when he preached this sermon. They would have understood the significance of the word blessed. And some of you have heard me say this before, but when you read, I just want to give you this tip. When you read the word blessed in the Bible, think of it, think of it like a flashing neon Budweiser sign at a Southern Baptist convention, (laughs) like really conspicuous, right? God is trying to get our attention with this word because the Bible uses this word in a very specific, not cliche, in a very specific, almost technical manner. It first shows up, this word blessed, it first shows up right after sin enters the world and turns the perfect world that God created upside down. Sin brought uh, into the world the curse of death. And a whole Pandora's box of evil was opened with it that threatened to destroy the very creation of God. What had once been right side up at the creation of the world was now turned upside down by sin. But in Genesis chapter 12, out of the blue, it seems, for no apparent reason, God chooses a guy, uh, a dude by the name of Abraham, And he says this to him. And in fact, here's what we're going to do. We're going to read this passage out loud together. And when you see the word bless, I want you to really punch it when you say it. You know, so it's not like, so so it's not like bless. It's like bless, okay? I want you to really punch it when you say it, all right? And here's what God said to Abraham. Let's read it together. We're going to put the verse up on the screen. It's in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. He says, I will make you into a great nation. Are you reading with me? (laughs) Okay, out loud. Not quietly, out loud. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. 
And the reason I had you do that is because I want to keep you awake. No, that's not really the reason. The reason I had you do that is that I want you to see that hear, it, hear, hear that word again, uh, is again, being repeated over and over and over, just like Jesus repeated it over and over and over again. It's a flashing neon sign that keeps repeating itself because God wants us to get it. And if you trace this word through the Bible, what God was promising Abraham when he said that he would bless him and he would be a blessing and all the families of the earth would be blessed through him, what God was promising Abraham was that he was not going to leave the perfect world that he created to rot and destroy itself under the curse of sin. Instead, through one of Abraham's descendants, he would bless the world with, and here's here's the blessing, a Messiah who would turn the world right side up again through radical transformation of people's lives. That's what the word bless means. So, you know, we use it in all these cliche ways. Do you understand that the word bless was referring to Jesus? He was the blessing. This is what God had promised Abraham, a Messiah who would turn the world right side up again through radical transformation of people's lives. And so you see this sermon in Matthew chapter 5 is a momentous occasion in human history when Jesus begins this word with the ser- with the word uh, this sermon with the word blessed and he keeps repeating it. He's hearkening back to Genesis 12 and he's saying this is that This is that. This moment is that. This is the long-awaited moment. The writing of the world is beginning. I'm the one. I'm the Messiah who's going to turn the world right side up again. I'm the blessing promised to Abraham. Abraham. And these people listening to Jesus, and you and I can be blessed, not by getting a new car, getting good test results from your doctor, having a great marriage or great kids, as wonderful as all of those things are, they aren't the blessing. The blessing is Jesus. And the way to be blessed is by becoming a disciple of the blessing, Jesus. You can live in the right side up in an upside-down world beyond all human hope. He can so transform your life that you will become, notice what he says in verse 14. You will become so transformed that you become, in verse 14, the light of the world, shining examples of hope in a hopeless world. In other words, this is the credible path out of the abyss that the author of that Washington Post article was looking for, but that no politician could offer. The credible path is discipleship under Jesus, learning to live in the way that Jesus created life to be lived. Now, again, I realize what an incredibly strange thing this is to say in the eyes of many people, that someone who lived 2,000 years ago would have a credible path out of our current abyss. I realize what a strange thing that is to say. About a decade and a half before he became Pope Benedict XVI, Joseph 
Ratzinger pointed to the strangeness of this in the beginning of his book entitled Introduction to Christianity. He said, It seems both presumptuous and foolish to assert that one single figure who is bound to disappear farther and farther into the mists of the past is the authoritative center of all of history. He goes on and he asks rhetorically, Can we cling at all to the straw of one single historical event? Dare we to base our whole existence, indeed the whole of history, on the straw of one happening in the great sea of history? And of course the answer that he was getting at in his question was yes. And the single figure that he is speaking about, the authoritative center of all of human history is Jesus. And the one single event that he is referring to is Christ's death on the cross. I hope you understand that the need for disciples of Jesus is as great today as it has ever been. Uh, Our politicians... uh, Our political system, it can only regulate what is. It cannot pull us out of the abyss as a culture. Only Jesus can do that. And yet what is so disconcerting is that many of the people who sit in churches on Sunday mornings and who claim to believe in Jesus as the authoritative figure of all of human history functionally pin their hope on political parties, presidents, congressmen, and Supreme Court justices. May I ask you, ever so gently this morning to ask yourself how much of your emotional energy and time and conversation and attention goes into politics and how much of it goes into deepening a relationship with the authoritative center of human history, the subject and the object of life. How much of it goes towards studying and supporting the policies of Trump, Sanders, Obama, Clinton, Booker, Biden? And how much of it goes to learning how to be a disciple of Jesus and actually practicing it? Because that says something about where your hope really lies. Politics and politicians and their policies are all important, sure, I understand But I hope you understand that none of them offer a credible path out of the abyss that we as a culture find ourselves in. Our only hope is Jesus, the only one who can turn the world and your world right side up. Our only hope is the blessing. And people who decide to be disciples of the blessing. He is the blessing to the world, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to look at these verses in verses 3 through 16. We're going to look at them in more detail next week, but I I want to close with this. It is the irony of all ironies. The Bible says that the one who is the blessing of God inaugurated his kingdom by becoming a curse. (laughs) The blessing became a curse. I said earlier that sin brought with it a curse. The curse was death. And in the Bible, death means, death means that we're cut off. That's, the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. It means that we're cut off. It means that we're cut off from God spiritually, the source of life. 
Uh, we're cut off from ourselves psychologically. We, we try to find meaning and significance and identity in places and people that we were never meant to find it in, leaving us desperate and anxious, and slaves to things and people. We're cut off from ourselves psychologically. We're cut off from other people by our pride and our greed and our hatred. Just look at social media and tell me if you think that's true or not. We're cut off from creation. What was once to work with us now becomes the very thing that destroys us. We're cut off from life. Eventually, every one of us, physically, every single one of us will die. That's the, the curse of sin is that we're cut off. And the only way that the curse could be reversed, the only way that the world could be turned right side up again, was for the one who was the blessing to become the curse. And this is what happened to Jesus on the cross. The Bible says he became a curse so that you and I could be blessed. On the cross, Jesus was cut off from his father. The curse wasn't the nails in his hands. It was the hole in his heart where his father used to be. There on the cross, Jesus became a curse. He was cut off from his, from, from his father to pay for the sin of humanity. Figuratively, he went into the abyss to rescue us from it. He was cursed so that we could be blessed. Life in the right side up begins by believing in Jesus. But may I also point out, to some of you who have believed in Jesus for a long time, but who functionally pin your hope on politicians and their policies and politics in general. May I point out that life in the right side up continues by believing that Jesus is the hope of the world. Where is your hope, City Church? Where is your hope? Is it in politics, policies, and politicians? Or is, in the Lord, or is it in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the King of the kingdom of God, the authoritative center of all of human history? Where is your hope? Blessed, blessed are those whose lives are being radically transformed through discipleship to Jesus. Would you bow your heads with me for prayer? Forgive us, Lord Jesus, for putting our hope anywhere but you. All the time and the energy that we spend on politics, it's important, Lord, uh, you have uh, ordained political leaders to regulate the, the sin and the evil of the world that we live in, but they can never, they can never create policies that bring us out of the abyss. Only you can do that. And so, Lord, I pray that you would impress this upon our hearts this week and in the following weeks that we examine this monumental sermon that is so urgent for us today. Would you impress this upon our heart that you are the blessing, you are the hope. And the way that we in America can be blessed is through discipleship to you. You're the credible path out of the abyss. Thank you for that. Thank you that you have not left us to ourselves. Thank you that you have not left the world to be destroyed 
rotted away by sin, but that you have come to turn the world right side up again. Thank you. And it is in your name, Lord Jesus Christ, that we worship.